Well, thank you very much, Audrey, for the kind introduction. Thank you um, all for coming. Um, I, I understand that five o'clock on a Friday is um, maybe not the best time for crisis and apocalypse, <laughs> but still there is a weekend to come and a lot of time to recover, I guess. Um, so when I prepared for this, I initially intended to uh, present you with um, PowerPoint and images and a lot of flashy stuff. And then I thought, I'm actually going to talk um, at the end of this paper about media a lot. And I think it is more appropriate to Kleist um, to stick with the text. So I put everything down here and you see this is, this is quite a long handout, um, uh, which hopefully for those of you who are not uh, too well acquainted with the text um, might help you kind of get into it. And as I'm talking about language as well, um, I thought um, there is some need of, of, of really hearing uh, Kleist's voice, even, even if it's in the translation, uh, in, in the ingenious translation um, of uh, David Constantine. Um, uh, and, and all of those of you that um, are big Kleist fans, um, just bear with us, please, um, and you probably won't mind reading some texts again. Um, one more thing before I start. Um, I've, th this paper is based on something I did um, la at a conference last year, and um, it was uh, written at a time, um, or at least the beginning was written at a time, um, or past uh, the attacks in, in Nice, um, past the incident in, in Munich, um, and now rereading it and, and kind of uh, having to change a lot, I realized how really in not much more than six months, um, my own perception of um, what happened last year and, and really what happened probably within the last years in, in uh, Europe in particular, uh, when we talk about uh, terrorism, but also when we talk about um, other political issues has changed in a speed that I think I've never ever experienced in my life before. And, um, and I think there is something um, that is reflected in Kleist about that time and the, kind of the, the way we uh, perceive um, events and incidents and we make sense of them. In July... 2016, when Mohammed Lahuiji Bohlal drove a lorry into the crowd celebrating Bastille Day at the Promenade des Anglais in Nice, uh, killing 86 people and injuring 434, public response was quick to refer to this tragic event as a terrorist attack. However, it remains unclear to which extent Lahuiji Bohlal had actually been subject to prior radicalization and whether he had been in contact with organized terrorism at all before the incident. Reflecting on the way the perpetrator was portrayed in the media for the Austrian journalist Corinna Milborn, the question arises whether some years ago we might have described the attack as a spontaneous killing spree rather than an act of terrorism. It is significant for the argument that Milban was in fact speaking of Amok. More precisely, she was using the German word Amokfahrt, meaning someone running or rather driving Amok. The German cultural critic Josef Vogel characterizes Amok as a cultural phenomenon by four specific characteristics. 
One, the attacker is an erratic lone perpetrator, often described as inconspicuous and suddenly shifting into a state of dramatic deviation from social norms. Two, in an abrupt fit, the perpetrator gets out of control and kills often random victims. Three, if the perpetrator survives, he, or less commonly she, often experiences a form of amnesia, showing no recollection of his or her previous actions. On the other hand, there is society, and I think that's point four then, yes, there is society and the crucial interest of the institutions concerned with the case, such as law enforcement, psychiatry, or the media, to reveal causes and motives for the act, and tendentially the failure to provide satisfying explanations. Retracing the history of Amok, Fogel examined early descriptions by travellers to Asia, in particular Malaysia, and as you might know, the word itself is of Malay origin. Fogel claims that the role of the historically European observers is in fact as important in constituting the phenomenon as the incidents themselves. From today's perspective, these ethnographical reports, largely from the 19th century, tend to ignore the specific cultural preconditions for Amok. For example, its resemblance to ritualized Malayan war tactics or its suicidal character in a society within which taking one's own life is placed under rigid taboo. Instead, the majority of European travelogues describing incidents of Amok focused on their apparent inexplicability, on the lack of any previous indications for the subsequent killing spree, or at least on the excessive disproportion to whatever was eventually identified as a possible trigger. Fogel concludes that the exotic remoteness of the Far East served as a projection screen for what was gradually excluded from the European consciousness. Forms of eruptive violence that defy the rational order of modern civil societies and therefore pose a threat against the very idea of the modern state. So this is the quote um, by Vogel that you have in German on your handout, and, and the English is really my own translation, so um, trying to get as close as I could. Indeed, it seems that these correspondences, Vogel is referring here to the travelogues he examined, are owed to a political imagination that associates the frontier with an unfinished statehood, with missing institutions and a deficient social order. It constitutes a screen upon which a fundamental peacelessness is cast. The Amok and its agents have, been, have become an ambiguous figure in which archaic warrior traditions, the barbaric and the nomadic, the brutish and the saintly, become undistinguishable in the declaration of continuous war and unbroken animosity. On the other side of the emerging European territorial nation-states, we find an area in which Amok represents an excessive form of lawlessness, an absence of government and suspended control. In short, a fundamental hostility against the state. While the political imagination of modernity is characterized by the fact that it relocates war and hostility to its peripheries, to, as it were, export it to the margins, the mythopoetic transformation of Indo-Malayan Amok must be regarded as an effect of political distortion, the resurgence of a suppressed reality in the form of continuous and molecular war. So if Amok is modernity's projection of a violent fundamental inexplicability, 
then, and, and this is one of the central assumptions for this paper, um, the discourse of terrorism has become somewhat of Amok's counterimage, constructing a semi-rational narrative for what just as much might be regarded as irrational, inexplicable, and opaque. Probably like no other German author, Heinrich von Kleist has found literary expression for the aporias of violence. It is therefore no surprise that the eponymous hero of one of his best-known novellas, Michael Kohlhaas, in the long and complex history of Kleist criticism has served as a model for both social figures, the frenzy killer and the political terrorist, the latter often with an implicit amount of sympathy on the critic's side. Michael Kohlhaas, published in 1810, is based on the true story of the horse trader Hans Kohlhase and his feud against a Saxon nobleman and eventually against the whole state of Saxony. Set in the early 16th century, the novella addresses a legal constellation in which the state's monopoly on the use of force has already been proclaimed in the Ewiger Landfriede, the perpetual public peace of 1495, as a ban on the medieval right of vendetta. However, it took significant time for this law until it became common practice and the 1530s, when Kohlhaas's feud took place, still saw a number of these private wars being carried out. To the present day, largely to the, to the, due to the fragmentary and contradictory sources, the legal legitimacy of Kohlhaas's feud remains uncertain. And when we look at Kleist's novella, even though it is just loosely based on the historical facts and takes some liberty to embellish and rearrange the story, in large parts it addresses this very question, whether Kohlhase, or respectively Kleist's Michael Kohlhase, had the right to take justice into his own hands. The novella brings forward a great number of reasons for and against Kohlhase's guilt, seemingly arguing for a balanced position in which the protagonist appears as both victim and perpetrator at the same time. And still it is difficult not to regard Kohlhase with at least some sympathy for his struggle against a corrupt and unscrupulous authority in a just case. One of the key motives of the novella is the disproportion between Kohlhase's feud, during which he slaughters his opponent's servants, gathers a mob, burns down parts of Wittenberg and Leipzig, and defeats an army of several hundred men that were sent out to capture him. So the disproportion between what really turns out to be a full-blown war and what is actually what it is actually triggered by two horses. Kleist's account of Kohlhase's feud begins when the horse dealer sets out from his home in the electorate of Brandenburg on a trade journey to Saxony. He stopped at a barrier near the Junker von Tronka's castle where he's required to produce transit papers. As Kohlhase is not able to do so, in fact, even though he has taken this route regularly, he's never heard of any such regulations, he's forced to leave two of his horses as collateral in order to proceed on his journey. Arriving in Dresden, he discovers that there is in fact no legal basis for the demanded transit papers. On his way back, wanting to reclaim his horses, Kohlhaas learns that they have been ill-treated and his servant Herse, whom he had left behind to take care of the horses, has fled the Junker's castle. Consequently, Kohlhaas seeks to sue the Junker von Tronka for the treatment of the horses and his men, but fails in part because of the Junker's personal relations in Dresden. 
When Kolas uh, turns to his own sovereign, the elector of Brandenburg, he is again unsuccessful, so that finally his wife proposes to deliver a petition to the elector herself, confident in her own personal relations to the court. However, she does not even get to the prince, rather she is struck down by one of the elector's guards, suffering injuries that in turn lead her death at her, uh, back at her husband's a few days later. This is when Kohlhaas decides to sell his house and property, send his children off to relatives and, quote, at once take up the business of revenge. What is striking and in fact revealing with regards to the central question of guilt is to compare the narrative voice of the prologue with the way the events of the feud itself are told. While we clearly perceive the action through the eyes of the protagonist during the first part of the novella, this suddenly changes when Kohlhaas sets out to take vengeance. In terms of Chirajnet's narratology, we as readers are initially confronted with an internal focalization on the eponymous character, shifting to an external focalization throughout the feud. We're only taken back to know about the protagonist's thoughts and emotions when he receives a letter by Martin Luther condemning Kohlhaas' doings. Right from the initial paragraph, we're told that until his 30th year, Kohlhaas, quote, could have stood as the very model of a good citizen, unquote. He seems to be self-confident about his own knowledge and authority, but at the same time ready to accept his own shortcomings. At the barrier, even though he considered the claims for transit papers as illegal demands, because he had crossed the borders 17 times in his life already, and he was fully cognizant with all the court's regulations pertaining to his trade. He eventually set off, quote, uncertain whether perhaps, after all, some such regulation might not have been introduced in the Saxon lands. As if the narrator wanted to provide us with further proof of Kohlhaas' good and honest nature, even after Kohlhaas discovers that there is really no law requiring him to carry such transit papers, we're told that, quote, he returned with no more bitterness than what was due to the general plight of the world to the castle at Tromka. To his surprise, he finds no trace of his stablemen there and his horses badly battered. When he was told by the castle steward that Kohlhaas' trusted servant had run away and left the horses unattended, Corlys again seems to be in doubt, but willingly decides to investigate and accept the steward's account if it proves to be true. Quote. For a proper sense of the world, born of familiarity with its fragile ordering, inclined him, despite the insults he had suffered, should in fact, as the steward asserted, any guilt be ascribable to the stableman, to put up with the loss of the horses at its fair consequence. Arriving back home, Hazard the stableman claims that he had protested against the horse's abuse on the fields and that was the reason why he was beaten and driven off the castle by the Junkers man. Subsequently, Kohlhaas intends to bring Tonka to court but, as mentioned, is unsuccessful in his endeavour. But even after several setbacks, with every new possibility to make his claim, such as addressing the elector of Brandenburg rather than the courts in Saxony, Kohlhaas seems to regain his sanguine humor. From Dresden, where he drew up his first complaint, he returns, quote, completely reassured. From Berlin, Brandenburg's capital, he returned, quote, easier in his mind than ever as to the outcome of his affair. From this perspective, Kleist's Kohlhaas could easily seem to be intended as a narrative justification of Kohlhaas' rampage, much like Friedrich Schiller's 
Der Verbrecher aus verlorener Ehre, The Criminal of Lost Honor, from 1786, in which Schiller recounts how unfortunate circumstances compel the main character ever deeper into crime. Schiller's novella has largely been regarded as a plea for a humane and, most importantly, empathic judicial system. Crime and empathy seem to be key in the case of Kohlhaas too. However, as Schiller's novella argues that we need to understand a criminal story in order to prevent crime altogether, with Kohlhaas, or should we rather say with Kleist, things are a bit more difficult. In fact, while the initial part of the novella, leading up to Kohlhaas' vendetta, makes a great effort to reflect the protagonist's effective reaction to his fate, this suddenly ends with the death of his wife. It almost seems as if his emotions are buried with her, or at least they are not accessible anymore to the reader. As he takes seven of his men, mark the number, on his vendetta, from the empathy of affect, the narrative shifts to the expressivity of force. With his small band, then promptly at nightfall, on the third day, trampling down the tall booth keeper and the gatekeeper who were standing in conversation under the gatehouse, he entered the castle, and whilst Herse, amid the sudden roaring, as they set fire to them of all the sheds and shacks within the castle walls, rushed up the winding staircase into the steward's tower, and slashing and stabbing, fell upon the steward and the bailiff, who was sitting half-undressed at cards, Kohlhaas broke into the heart of the, palace, uh, of the place for Junker Wenzel. The avenging angel comes down from the heaven thus. Meanwhile, reached by the fire among the sheds, the castle itself, in all its extent, had caught, and thick smoke billowed from it into the sky, and whilst Sternbald, with three busy companions, was dragging out everything not nailed down and tipping it by the horses as fair booty, down came to Hazard's cheer from the open windows of their quarters in the tower the bodies of the steward and the bailiff and their wives and children too. As the Junker himself was able to flee, Kohlhaas looks out for his horses. It happened that a young stable boy, employed at Trankenburg, hurried by to bring out the Junker's war horses from a spacious stone stable threatened by the fire. Kohlhaas, at that moment, noticing in a small straw-covered shed his own black pair, asked the boy, why did he not rescue them? And when the boy, putting the key into the stable door, answered, because the shed, as they could see, was already alight, Kohlhaas, wrenching the key violently out of the door, flung it over the wall and drove the boy under a hail of blows with the flat of his sword into the burning shed and forced him amid the terrible laughter of the bystanders to rescue the black horses. But when the boy, pale with terror, a few moments before the shed collapsed behind him, stepped out of it, leading the horses, Kohlhaas had gone... And when he went to the men assembled in the space before the castle and asked the horse dealer, who repeatedly turned his back on him, what he should do with the creatures, Kohlhaas suddenly, with a terrifying gesture, raised his foot, and the kick, he, had he delivered it, would have been the boy's death. Then, giving no answer, mounted his chestnut stallion, positioned himself under the castle gateway, and, whilst his men continued their activities, he waited in silence for daybreak. Kohlhaas' interior, that had been the narrator's focal point before, has now turned into a silent enigma. He doesn't speak to the reader anymore. Rather, Kohlhaas produces public mandates, urging, quote, the country to give no assistance to Junker Wenzel von Tronka, against whom he was waging a just war. Indeed, he ordered every inhabitant 
not expecting relatives and friends to deliver him up or suffer death and the certain destruction by fire of all they might call their own. Following a hyperbolic dynamic, Kohlhaas' second mandate addresses the Junker von Tronka as the enemy of all Christendom. In another mandate, appearing soon after, he turned himself a man subject to no law of the empire or the world, but only to gods, rapidly condemned by the narrator as fanatical nonsense, sick and misbegotten. Corlys Hybris and the subsequent disapproval by the narrating voice reach their peak when the horse dealer defeats the armies that were sent against him and seems to be reaching a state of delusion regarding his power and potency. Five days after routing these two forces, Corlys appeared before Leipzig and fired the city on three sides. He called himself, in the mandate he distributed on this occasion, a viceroy of Michael the Archangel, come with fire and sword to punish in the persons of all who might take the Junkers' part in the quarrel, the wickedness into which the whole world has sunk. At the same time, from the castle at Lützen, which he had taken and in which he had established himself, he called on the people to join him in setting up a better order of things, and the mandate, approaching insanity, concluded signed here at the fortress of Lützen, the seat of a provisional world government. Only after Corlas receives a letter from Martin Luther, a document that is actually historically substantiated, we get to see an emotional reaction by the main character again. In an almost filmic scene, the narration zooms in on the protagonist. Through a crowd that parted timidly for him, Corlas, on either side, he was returning, with a show that had become habitual since his last mandate, a great sword like that of the Caribbean on a red leather cushion decorated with tassels of gold was carried before him and 12 men followed after with, uh, followed after with burning torches. When Sternbart and Weidmann, two of the men, their swords under their arms in a way that must strike him as odd, stepped forward around the pillar on which the letter was posted. Kohlhaas, sunk in thought, his hands behind his back. As he came under the gate, he raised his eyes and stopped short. And when the two men now before him respectfully made way, he gave them distracted glances and approached the pillar in a few quick strides. No words can describe what went on then in his soul when he saw the letter fixed here, accusing him of injustice and signed with the name of all the names he knew best loved and fittest to be revered, Martin Luther. A dark red rose into his face. Twice, taking off his helmet, he perused the writing from beginning to end, turned then with an uncertain look there among his men, as though to say something and said nothing, took down the sheet, read through it again and called out, Weidemann, get my horses saddled. When Kohlhaas meets, uh, um, yeah, meets Luther, he justifies his doings by arguing that he felt expelled from society because he was, quote, denied the protection of law. And Luther, still disgusted by Kohlhaas' actions, um, though promises to help securing a fair trial to the horse dealer. The second part of the novella tells the complicated story of how Kohlhaas receives safe conduct, but his case is further delayed and finally decided in Brandenburg rather than Saxony, where the verdict grants him restoration of his horses 
and his honor, but condemns him to death for his breach of peace. It's called a story, therefore, the tale of an innocent tradesman who falls victim to a system that doesn't serve justice but self-interest, a victim of authorities infiltrated by nepotism and corruption. Like Wolfgang Witkowski puts it, who is this man, Kohlhaas, anyway? Throughout the novella, Kleist shows him as living up to his reputation, cited in the opening paragraph of being an exemplary citizen, neighbor, husband, father, good and fair in word and deed. This perfect head of household, Kleist's time still the paradigm of for a good sovereign as Landesvater, dwarfs his superiors by the way he tries to care for his countrymen, his killed wife's reputation, their children's well-being, and for his servant. Kohlhaas' atrocities are easily put aside, for in fact it is Tonka and his conspirators who are to blame. The quest for justice over the loss of his wife and wealth made Kohlhaas what he never intended to be, a killer, and this is the responsibility of his provocateurs. Even though most critics don't share Witkowski's unconditionally positive judgment of Kohlhaas' character, he's largely regarded as a tragic hero, torn between his lawful claims and their legal unenforceability. To this respect, the novella's subtext is usually placed in contemporary debates on natural law and the right of individual resistance against unjust authorities. From a late 20th century perspective, Kohlhaas has been repeatedly regarded as a historical predecessor of German political terrorism, the Red Army um, of the likes of the Red Army Fraction and their sympathizers. Going back to the contrast between terrorism and Amok as explanatory models for violence that I have initially discussed, I wonder whether the ruptures between narrative perspective before, after, and during Kohlhaas' feud shouldn't be explored a bit more closely. Where the narrator seems to be concerned to construct a plausible emotional logic of honesty, sincerity, and trust that is repeatedly disappointed, Korla's hybris is rejected as fanatical nonsense. The cruel atrocities that he and his men commit are left, for the most part, though, uncommented. For these reasons, it seems not unsubstantiated to see in Kohlhaas a man running amok rather than fighting for his convictions. Drawing on Josef Vogel's work, Hans Richard Brittnacher asserts, quote, Kohlhaas is not engaged in civil war. He does not lead a food, um, and even less does he act as a tribune of the people who attends to the interests of the disenfranchised. The self-empowerment as an avenging angel and sovereign of a provisional world government stands as a metaphor for the pathology of a hero that has been turned into an unpredictable perpetrator by the enemy of the circumstances. Brittmacher goes on to indicate that Kleist is probably the only author of the early 19th century who dared to conceive the vacuum of a civil society and the explosive nature of a self that is at the same time its own creator and, the conscious, um, and, the con and conscious of its own doing. In Brittmacher's words, a character like Kohlhaas represents the nightmare of contingency within the civil order. In contrast to the Enlightenment's optimism of a comprehensive understanding of the world, Kleist addresses a fundamental lack of knowledge when it comes to the human psyche. Again, Brittnacher, no longer does evil appear as the opposite 
of what is good or as a defiance of the law, but as a form of excess that is impossible to comprehend. While I agree with Brittnacher in large parts of his assessment, I believe he fails to fully recognize the role of the narrative voice. While Brittnacher does note the conspicuous absence of introspection during the outbreak of Kohlhaas' violence, it was left to critic Dieter Brüggemann to reveal the many layers of subtle manipulation within the structure of the narrative itself. And it needs to be said that Brüggemann's primary goal is to unveil a complex network of alchemic symbols within Kleistros, something that I haven't found overly convincing. But in the course of this analysis, Brüggemann investigates Kleist's writing very closely and has identified a number of peculiar inconsistencies that have so far gone unnoticed. One of his main arguments is concerned with the Stuarts' claim that Kohlhaas needed transit papers to cross the barrier near the Tronka Castle. If we trust the councillors in Dresden that Kohlhaas consults, this regulation would be an arbitrary fabrication. But really, one could ask, which purpose uh, would they serve? Even though the way uh, that the Junker, his steward, and the man are characterized insinuates that they have been plotting against the horse dealer, no initial motivation to invent a fictional regulation is ever revealed. Quite the opposite. Much later within the story, when Kohlhaas awaits his trial in Dresden, the Tronka family brings forward, quote, an electoral decree in which, 12 years previously, because of an epidemic among livestock, the import of horses from Brandenburg into Saxony was indeed forbidden. This, as a conclusive proof, not only that the Junker was right, but that he was actually obliged to halt the horses Kordas had brought over the border. Surprisingly enough, this turn of events is never further explored. Brüggemann is able to highlight several other cases in which the narrative proves to be quite unreliable. But, for the exception of the feud itself, Kohlhaas' perspective is presented as the truth. While throughout the novella, the Junker and his family are referred to as somewhat of an old boy club stretching across Saxony and deep into Brandenburg's administration, Kohlhaas' use of his business network and the sincerity of his own aides are never put in doubt. In the same way, Kohlhaas' upright and peaceful nature, praised by the narrator and the novella's outside and so vigorously iterated by Witkowski, could be put in question. When Kohlhaas returns to the castle for the first time to reclaim his horses, finds them battered and ill-fed, and is sent off by the steward who warns him not to cause any fuss, we're given a brief impression of what is about to come later. Quote, the horse dealer felt the thumbing of his heart. He felt powerfully inclined to fling the fat-bellied good-for-nothing in the dirt and tread on his brassy face. Why this strikingly drastic incursion of violence so different from anything else we've heard about the horse dealer so far? Mind that we have just been told that Kohlhaas had returned with, quote, no bitterness, and that in fact it is more than dubious whether the steward's claim had really been unsubstantiated. And soon after, when Kohlhaas leaves the castle again, we're told about his doubts whether maybe his servant did not run away after all, well, whether maybe his servant did run away after all, and he, the servant, is in fact to blame for the host's state. Taking this episode, uh, the atrocities Kohlhaas and his men will come back soon, and his self-fashioning as superhuman avenger 
it seems that there are two conflicting strands, that the narrative is not quite able to merge. While one part of the story presents us with a character that experiences an emotional buildup of humiliation, the other hints towards a latent potential for violence, almost as if he was deliberately creating a crisis to trigger its release. Our own assessment of Kohlhaas is, however, subtly controlled by the narrative voice. He's presented as the example of uprightness and honesty, whatever he says or thinks, it is taken as the truth. While Tonga's political influence is depicted as a corrupt network of relatives, Kohlhaas' allies are sincere and law-abiding. If it wasn't for the sudden rampage that constitutes his feud, those few days when the protagonist turns into a misbegotten fanatic. Psychologically, this could be explained as a paroxysmal outbreak of violence or the blank space of amok, inaccessible to rational discourse. On a structural level, however, we see the eponymous hero struggling about how to uphold his status as an individual. Following Ralf Sukala, who bases his reading of the novella on Jean Baudrillard's Transparency of Evil, the text is a multi-layered story about a social order of mutual exchangeability. Kohlhaas' business is based on trade, when the mobile dynamic of the horse dealer is confronted with the static power of the country aristocrat. Kohlhaas leaves his horses as collateral transaction for the missing transit papers. He takes revenge, payback for the humiliations he has experienced. Even the end of the story is characterized by the very motive of exchange in a subplot that has repeatedly been criticized for its tendency towards romantic mysticism. Having been convicted for his wrongdoings, Kohlhaas has the opportunity to escape his execution by trading in his life for a capsule that was given to him by a mysterious gypsy woman. A case that contains a secret prophecy of greatest value to the elector of Saxony. For Baudrillard, most comprehensively developed in symbolic exchange and death, the paradigm of capitalism, uh, the paradigm of capitalism's hegemonical social order is the idea that everything has an exchange value. In this respect, individuality, the ultimate idea of inexchangeability, comes to be seen as its evil counterpart. In Kleist's novella, both the Junker and Kohlhaas do evil. The Junker, when he erects a barrier, seemingly without any reason, the most arbitrary act, blocking the exchange of goods on the roads under his control. As a consequence, Kohlhaas is turned from a subject of trade into a subject of violence, reinstating his own sovereignty and renouncing the order of equal exchange by exaggerating in his revenge. For Baudrillard, the most fundamental act of terrorism is the refusal, the refusal of exchange, in particular when the terrorist gives his life. Society is lacking any means of punishment for the suicide attack. Therefore, death and everything that Western civilization has banned from its globalized hegemony is the terrorist's strongest weapon. In the light of Baudrillard's assessment regarding the initial distinction between amok and terrorism, I wonder if they're not maybe one and the same thing after all. In the final episode of the novella that I've briefly mentioned, Kohlhaas refuses to exchange his life for the gypsy's prophecy. His intention is 
to reveal the vulnerability of the power that he has been subjected to. Quote, Kohlhaas replied to a servant of, of the Elector of Saxony, Sir, if your sovereign, the Elector of Saxony, came and said, I will annihilate myself with all the band of those who help me rule, annihilate my, himself, do you understand me? Which is, of course, my soul's dearest wish. I will still refuse to give him the paper which matters more to him than his existence and should say, you can bring me to the scaffold, but I can do you injury and I will. The death penalty enforced on Kohlhaas is also effective to the elector's house as the prophecy is about how and when his family's reign will end. The wound that is struck is the lack of knowledge. Before he's executed, Kohlhaas swallows the capsule containing the prophecy. Just as the narrator can't permeate Kohlhaas' mind during the course of his vengeance, the elector falls into despair as he's not able to know his own fate. The fear that terrorism and amok induce are the limitation, the limitations of their nobility. And yet the narrative voice is constantly writing against this state of not knowing. It constructs conflicting and often contradictory assessments of the plot, striving to create meaning where there maybe isn't anything to create. In Baudrillard's approach, this is the role of modern mass media, the pursuit to make sense on the surface, on a deeper level thoroughly entangled with terrorism. This was a thought not unfamiliar to Kleist, publisher of one of Germany's first daily papers, the Berliner Abendblätter. I would therefore like to end on a quote from Baudrillard, exploring the bonds between terrorism and the media, which I think can also be read some of, somewhat as a commentary on the plot of Kleist's novella and its relation to the narrative voice. We try, retrospectively, to impose some kind of meaning on it, to find some kind of interpretation, but there is none. And it is the radicality of the spectacle the brutality of the spectacle, which alone is original and irreducible. The spectacle of terrorism forces the terrorism of spectacle upon us. And against this immoral fascination, even if it unleashes a universal moral reaction, the political order can do nothing. This is our theater of cruelty, the only one we have left. Extraordinary in that it unites the most extreme degree of the spectacular and the highest level of challenge. It is at one and the same time the dazzling micromodel of a kernel of real violence with a maximum possible echo. Hence, the purest form of spectacle and a sacrificial model mounting the purest symbolic form of defiance to the historical and political order. We would forgive them any massacre if it had a meaning, if it could be interpreted as historical violence. This is the moral axiom of good violence. We'd pardon them any violence if it were not given media exposure. Terrorism would be nothing without the media. But this is all illusion. There is no good use of the media. The media are part of the event. They are part of the terror and they work in both directions. <laughs>